please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, this is 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for also for the sins of the whole world. You guys can take a seat. Thank you, Jen. Oops. It's great to be with you all this morning. It's, it really is a joy to be able to take part in this series that we've been going through for the summer, which is this idea of, um, of asking some hard questions and asking questions about what are the sorts of things or the sorts of practices that build a rich internal life in the Lord, a rich life of joy, liberty, creativity? What are, these, what are the things and the practices that foster this kind of life-giving depth of relationship with God? And we, we've looked at, it's been interesting in our family because this, this series has, uh, we talked about the Bible and um, my wife started reading on the Bible Project app and watching the videos and, and going through a reading plan. And then we talked about prayer and um, so I downloaded the Pray As You Go app and um, have been trying to do the examine um, at night before bed. And uh, we had a great conversation about Sabbath a few weeks ago. And um, I don't have an app for you today, um, but uh, I do want to begin and continue a conversation about the idea of what confession is. And what is it? What is it not? Why do we do it? And how does it fit in our Christian life? And what does it mean? What does it say about the, just the idea of forgiveness, like how do confession and forgiveness work together? And so I um, want to be a little bit uh, theoretical and theological about this, but also want to be practical and talk about what are some healthy practices. I feel that right there. I'm kind of on the inside. That's me. Um, so um, it's this wonderful image of like God taking me out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but that's what I'd like to do today. So um, my background, I grew up Roman Catholic. And so when I was in eighth grade, I was in the middle of confirmation classes. And um, in confirmation classes, you learn about the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, and you learn particularly about the practicalities of the sacraments. And though I had had my first communion uh, much earlier on, now was time to kind of get into what the sacraments are. And one of the sacraments is the sacrament of contrition um, or confession. And so we went through this process, and I was coached on how this process goes. Now, if you're, if you're also a denominational refugee, like I am, 
Um, and maybe you've come from a Lutheran church or something. It's called, that's the office of the keys is what they call it. Uh, Anglican church, I think they call it the act of contrition as well. Um, but anyhow, what you do, and some of you probably have an image in your head about what a Roman Catholic confessional looks like. Um, whether you've actually gone into one and you're a, um, you grew up Roman Catholic or, um, or have been practicing that, or you've only seen it in the movies. I mean, uh, where you have these kind of old school uh, booths on the side of the church, right? And the priest sits in one and there's a veil and then you, you come up and you kneel down and you anonymously confess your sins. Or if it's a spy movie, you pass notes or whatever. Um, you know, whatever it is. But, but that, that was kind of the, um, the way... Uh, I was thinking about it. Now, the church that I went to, I grew up in Irvine, and it was at St. John Newman. They didn't have the confessionals, the, the standard pre-Vatican II confessionals in the church. What they had were they had rooms off to the side. When they built the church, they built little, like, conference rooms off to the side. And you could have it, when you walked in, you would have a choice of whether you would kneel behind the veil and you would confess anonymously to the, to the priest that was there, and um, what they had was there was a kneeling bench here and a wall, um, but they also had an open room off to the left. And so when you came in, it was either anonymous kneeling or you could hang a left and sit in a chair and go face to face with the priest for confession. So here I am, I'm 13 years old and I walk in and I see the anonymous kneeling bench right there. And I turn to my left and I see, I see the chair and I've got this choice. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like anonymous kneeling, but my body like started walking towards the chair. And I was like, whoa. And so now here I am. Like you can't like, sorry, you know, other side. So here I am, 13 years old, and I'm sitting in front of Father Calm Conlon. Okay, he was, very, he was an Irish priest. He was a warm but stern man. I think that that's like, I've just described all Roman Catholic clergy. Um, by doing that. Now, so here I am, and the thing about being in Father Conlon's presence, and I hadn't really kind of figured this out before I got in there, but it made me nervous, like face-to-face -face with Father Conlon. And so when it came time, I said the prayer, I said, you know, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned, da-da-da-da. And um, this was the first time in there. And so when it came time to spill my guts, I don't know if that's a theological term, but when it came time to do it, and I'm face-to-face -face with Father Conlon, I totally sandbagged. Like, I did not give it everything I had. I came up with the lamest, milk-toasty confession. It was like, I've been mean to my brother, right? I'm like, come on. Like, and I probably at home had like a playboy under my bed and had been using the Lord's name in vain and cussing it up. And I thought I was pretty awesome, which we like to call pride. So I had plenty to confess, but I totally sandbagged it, okay? Mean to my brother, who was like a year and a half older than me. How mean can I be, right? All right. <laughs> All right. So I sandbagged it. And Father Conlon, so what happens in a Roman Catholic confessional is that after you confess, you're given a penance. And in this case, Father Conlon gave me um, six Our Fathers and two Hail Marys. It's not a football play. It's an actual prayer. Um, so, so I went out, and it was funny because when he gave the penance, I was like, that's pretty steep. Um, I, I had this internal sense of like how it ought to go. Um, and so I went out to the pews, and I kneeled down, and I said my six Our Fathers and two Hail Marys. And, um, and according to Roman Catholic doctrine, 
um, after I completed my penance that I was assured that I received the forgiveness of the church and of God. Now, I tell that story because all of us in here, one way or another, however, wherever you've come from, we all have kind of these images in our heads of what it means when we come to God and confess our sins. And for me, um, I have had in my Christian life an opportunity and really a necessity of having second thoughts about what that process looks like. And what I want to encourage you, encourage you today and what I want to talk about is this idea of what is it that we are doing when we confess our sins to God? To ask the question, why do we do it? And what is a healthy way of thinking about what is going on when we confess our sins? And so whether you have in your head this idea of a confessional or whether uh, maybe you grew up more evangelical and this is just kind of a more internal thing, whatever it is, what I want to invite us to do is to, in, to begin and continue a conversation about what is it that we do when we confess? What is, what is it? And what isn't it? And so what I want to start with is this idea of I want to talk about what I think it isn't. And to encourage you to, um, if you think about it this way, um, to rethink it, to have some second thoughts. And the way I want to encourage you to, to not think about this is I think that thinking about confession in a transactional way is something that is not helpful for the Christian life. Now, and, and here's the thing, when I, so this idea of a transactional nature of confession, and one of our verses in our passage kind of lends itself to a kind of transactional nature. Look at verse 9 in 1 John chapter 1. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if taken kind of as a, um, as a, uh, a cause and effect conditional statement, it can sound like when I confess and only when I confess are my sins forgiven. And it's this very transactional nature. And the kind of the way this gets set up is like this. And whether you're Roman Catholic or, and certainly the transactional sense came out of my Roman Catholic background, but even when I heard the gospel and I came to faith in Christ, I still thought of my confession essentially as a transactional experience. Let me explain what I mean. That we've got this, I kind of looked at it as this integer scale where you've got zero in the middle, which is neutrality, and you got negative 10 over here, which is the bad stuff. So if, you're, if you sin, you go down on the integer scale. Negative 10, I'll just, that's our stopping point. You can go further if you'd like. Hopefully not. But on the other side are the good points. Over here, positive 10, righteousness, right? So you've got, so you start here at zero, and as I sin, I move down the scale. Boom, boom. As I confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and I come back to zero. Now, as I go up the scale, and I, I do some good stuff, and I, I listen to the Spirit, then I start moving up the scale. But once I sin, boom, I'm back down minus one. Okay? I confess, come back, and I kind of move along the scale. I do well, I sin, I go back down, I sin, sin, sin keep going, maybe I forget for a while, but then I come back and, and, I, and I confess. Sometimes I go along, I have unconfessed sin. And the question about that, and what I, what I would encourage you to think about that, um, that essentially then confession becomes about asking God for forgiveness. And that forgi 
confessing all my sins brings me to a point of neutrality before God. And I think that this is a flawed way of thinking about confession. And I'm going to make a theological case as to why I think it's a flawed way of thinking about confession and about thinking about forgiveness. All right. Is anybody uncomfortable yet? I mean, it's a little warm. It's like I, when Dave was like, what topic do you want to do? And I said, well, what do you got? And he said, I said, I'll do confession. Then I realized, like, if you talk about confession, you've got to talk about sin. I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. This will be great. Fantastic. Okay, so here's why I think that this transactional integer scale is not a helpful way of thinking about confession or the forgiveness of sins. For one, as I read the New Testament, okay, thinking about the whole of the New Testament, okay, my relationship with God seems to be dependent primarily on what the New Testament calls faith. That as I read, it's justification by faith. Faith is what puts me in a right relationship with God. That it's not that confession is what does it. Certainly confession is mentioned in the New Testament. But the idea of faith seems to be the linchpin by which we enter into this idea of forgiveness. If you look at um, Romans chapter 3, you don't have to go there, but Romans chapter 3 talks about this righteousness of God that is revealed and this righteousness that we experience on the basis of faith, not on the basis of confession. Okay, certainly in Romans chapter 10, it talks about if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you have faith in your heart, then you will be saved. But even then, confession is more about Jesus as Lord. It's the positive side of confession, not the confession of your sin. Okay, all right, that's point one. The other thing is that as I read in the New Testament, and it's particularly in Paul, and I realize that we're, we're in 1 John, but we're now going over to Paul, but um, justification seems to be the issue, um, and Justification is by faith, and we're reformed, so justification by faith shouldn't, shouldn't uh, alarm anyone here. I mean, we're at the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, justification by faith, here we go. You know, Luther, Calvin, it's all good. Um, but when we think about justification, justification has two parts to it. And um, one part is the forgiveness of sins. Um, the other part is what we call, and the word justify, to justify means to make righteous, And so the idea is, when you put your faith in Jesus, not only are you forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. Think about how many of your sins were in the future when Jesus died for you. All of them, right? So when you put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Now, here's the thing. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have neutrality before God. No, it doesn't say that. I'm just kidding. Okay, it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And the idea then is that justification has these two parts, that we put our faith in Jesus and we experience the forgiveness of our sins, but we also experience the imputation of righteousness. We experience righteousness. Justification is about being made righteous. And we find out that this righteousness is not our own working our way up the scale 
As Paul says in Philippians chapter three, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness from God on the basis of faith in Jesus. And the idea is when I put my faith in Jesus, not only are my sins forgiven, but I am covered, imputed is the word, we're reformed, so we can talk about Calvin, that Calvin uses that we have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. It's not mine. It's a foreign righteousness. It's an alien righteousness, but it's nonetheless the righteousness by which God is now going to choose to relate to me and you. So when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ and he chooses to see the righteousness of Christ. It's like you put up an umbrella and that's the righteousness of Christ. Underneath, you've got your issues, right? But God chooses to see his son, chooses to see the umbrella instead of you. And you're thankful for that. That's, that's what we call salvation. That's what we call positional righteousness. So all this to say that I think that the integer style of I, I sin, I sin, I sin, I confess, and then I work my way up does not take into consideration the basic language of salvation as the New Testament puts it. Okay, so that's the other, that's the next thing. So the idea then is that if we keep this integer style, then what we end up doing is we make our salvation or we make justification a fluctuation. So that any, at any different moment, at any given moment, I might be below the line or above the line. And the point of salvation that God, that God accomplishes through Christ's work on the cross is to say, I don't want you wondering if you're above the line or not. I want to put you in an environment where I know I can relate to you over and over and over and over and over and over again. This is the environment where I think transformation takes place. And that God says, I'm going to impute you with the righteousness of Christ, and that's how our relationship is going to go after this point of initial faith in Jesus. And so the question then comes, how does, how does confession fit into that? If it's not transactional, and I would say this, just because I came, I, I'm no longer Roman Catholic did not mean that I immediately, as an evangelical, started to dispense or disperse the idea of a transactional nature. It took some time for me to figure out and some training and some theology to, to kind of enter into this idea that God has forgiven me of all my sins and has imputed me with the righteousness of Christ. And now when I confess, I'm doing something different than what I thought I was doing before. I feel, I feel like we should take some questions. I mean, it's, it's it, okay, so this is, doesn't it feel like that? It's good. Turn to Romans chapter five. I wanna, I wanna just, um, I wanna, uh, I wanna talk a little bit about this idea of what happens when we sin. Like, theologically speaking, there's a number of things that happen when we sin, but one thing that does not happen that I feel like I have heard in my Christian life from well-meaning teachers at certain times is that when I sin, that, um, uh, that the communication lines between me and God shut off. Like when I sin, that the communication lines shut off. And I want to just argue that that's exactly the opposite of what happens. Okay? And here's why. Okay. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have neutrality with God. No, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. 
Okay? That's a great image. We now stand in this grace. Then it goes on to talk about, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, etc., etc. Verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Okay, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. All right. Verse six says, it was at just the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay. What's the right time? There's three things in this passage. While we were still weak, we had nothing to offer to God. While God shows his love for us in this, verse 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, why is it just the right time? Because if we were powerful, if we had something to offer God, if we were his friends, then maybe he has a reason to lean in our direction. But he does it when we have nothing to offer him. Weakness. When what we do have to offer him is repulsive to him. Sin. When we would rather spit in his face as an enemy. That is when he leans in to say, you know what? I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for you. And then I'm going to indwell you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to invest two-thirds of the Trinity. I know we're not supposed to talk like that. But I'm going to invest two-thirds of the Trinity into you when at your worst at your worst your absolute worst is when i'm going to give my best gifts and so this idea this notion that when i sin it cuts me off from god look it was way worse before everybody it was way worse before and that's when he leaned in closest that's when he gave his best gifts at your very worst. Why now is he going to withhold the spare change in his pocket? And so when we think about this as an integer that I, if I sin, then it cuts off. No, actually what happens when you sin, and this is so counterintuitive, what happens when you sin is that the Holy Spirit actually leans in closer and says, you know what you did is wrong. The Holy Spirit theologically starts to convict us. Far from cutting off communication, it actually opens it up. And so the Spirit, when we, when we sin, um, so let me, let me back up. I'm like three points ahead from where I should be because I'm getting kind of pumped up. <laughs> so when, when we think about confession, I want us not to think about it in terms of justification. So what hangs in the balance with confession is not our salvation or even our standing with God. I'm going to theologically argue that that has already been settled by your initial 
confession of Jesus as Lord, your faith in Jesus. Your standing with God has been established by means of the blood of Jesus. What hangs in the balance with confession is the movement towards the goal of sanctification or the goal of salvation, which I would argue is to share the mind and the attitudes and the sensibilities and the activities of God, of Jesus. To be conformed to the image of his son. To share in the thoughts, in the attitudes, in the activity of what Jesus would do on this earth right now. What he already has done. And as I share in that idea, that moves me into becoming more like God. Now, godly. I, look, we don't become metaphysically like God. But we do share in the attitudes and relationships and the mind of Christ. That's the goal of salvation. That's the goal of sanctification. So I would argue that confession, a word that literally means, homo logeo is the Greek word. It's, it's two parts. Uh, homo, which means same, and logeo, which means to say or to speak. When we confess, we say the same thing. And what that means is, and what it usually gets translated as, is that we agree. When you confess, you agree. And who are you agreeing with you when you confess? You're agreeing with God. God says, that's a sin, that leads to death. And what we say is, that's a sin, that leads to death. That's the pathway to darkness. That's the pathway to death. I'm agreeing with you, God, and I'm confessing that. When I confess, I say, I agree with you, God, that that's a sin. That this attitude is killing me. I agree with you, God, that this activity is not bringing me life, it's bringing me death. And I agree with you. And I've come to agree with you. And it then sets the stage then to repent and to move out of that. But that does not affect our standing with God. We stand in the grace of God in terms of justification. What is being affected now is our entry into the richness of life in Christ. And the transformation into his image. It's about moving away from being a disordered human towards being ordered as a human but our standing with God has been established. So, when we sin, we confess. Now, the reason we confess and the reason you confess and I confess is not because our own conscience moves us to confess. Theologically speaking, what moves us to confess is the Holy Spirit. So, when you and I sin, um, God says that's sin, that's harmful. I agree with God. Um, what I did is a sin. And so when we confess or when, we've, when we become convicted by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit um, invested in us, indwelling us, says something like this. Craig, you're a bearer of God's image. You are a son of God. He might say to you, you're a daughter of God. Your God-given dignity is far above what you just did or is far above what you just thought or as far above this attitude that you have. What you have said or done is not the way to life. That's not the way to life. It's the way to death. And it would be good, it would be right, and it would be necessary for you to turn from it. Jesus has made a way for you to be forgiven of this. And I, the Spirit, will empower you to turn from this as well. Let's go to the Father and confess this. Jesus will be there with us. That's 
Now, that might not, <laughs> when you get convicted, that's not maybe everything you hear, but that theologically is what is going on when you commit a sin or have an attitude or feel a, a sense of disposition towards sin and the spirit convicts. That's the idea. Now, there's a couple ways that the spirit can get muted in this. There's a couple ways that the spirit can get muted because just because the spirit convicts does not mean that we immediately go to confession or that we immediately understand what's going on. There's a couple things that will do this. Look at verse 10. The first thing that might mute this, this is, a, we're back in 1 John. If you're following along at home, if you're keeping score at home. In verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And this is simply the truth that when we come out of the womb, we have a, a disposition, a bent towards doing the things that God does not want us to do. The things that lead to death, we have a bent towards. And that we have actually done acts of sin. So if we say we have not sinned, according to our passage, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Another thing that mutes the voice of the Spirit is in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, I currently have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is another reason why I don't like the transactional nature where I come to a point where I confess my sins because if that were true, then if I say I confess my sins, I've confessed all my sins, then right now I have no sin. And the truth is, no, there's plenty of sin there. Okay? And it also, this idea of what about unconfessed sin, look, it, it, it's, it's messy that way. So the idea that if we have these attitudes where we say we have no sin or we say we have not sinned, it mutes the voice of the Spirit. And the Spirit then is not able to take us to the Father with Jesus who is an advocate on our behalf. The work of confession is essentially counterintuitive, especially in this passage. If we look at this passage, it starts with this idea, which Jen read wonderfully. I, I would have just said, look, that was a great read. Let's just go home. It was good. It, it, was, it was right. It was very, it was, it was thoughtful. Um, but it starts, the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So what you need to do is take your darkness and confess it to him. No, like, that's a, that's a punishing light. That's, a, that's like a, the light of a, of a, a high-speed chase helicopter searchlight, right? That is a light that reveals all. And I don't, wanna, I don't want that. But what, what, there's, what it's saying here is God is light and there is no darkness. And so he says, look, if there's, if there's no darkness, first thing is this. Don't say you have fellowship and walk in the darkness, so don't walk in the darkness. But here's the problem. Even though I don't walk in the darkness, I have internal darkness. It's there. The darkness is there. So what do I do with this? Well, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The solution to our internal darkness is not denying that it's there. The solution is in verse 9. If we confess our sin, if we confess our darkness... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. So we confess our darkness to him. We don't deny our darkness. Pretty counterintuitive to our culture. We come into the light by means of the blood of Jesus and we do so by confessing. We confess our darkness. But we do so on the, on the, on the, on the bedrock 
of this doctrine of justification. And so we don't come with this idea that I'm afraid of what he might do to me if I come. We come because he has already said, at your very, very worst, I came so close to you. I was so, I came, that was the moment. Your very, very worst, that was when I came. So now come to me. Come to me. Come to me in the spirit. This, this, Jesus will be there too. Come, let's go together and talk to the Father. And we do this by the conviction of the Spirit. Now, sometimes when we sin and we realize that we have, while the Spirit might say, go to God, go to the Father, we might say, how can I go again for this thing? I need to go, I need to go take care of this on my own before I go to, how can I do this again? How can I do this again? Or I got to do some kind of penance. I got to say my Our Fathers and my Hail Marys. I got to do some, some penance before I go to him. Okay. Now, this is where I want to bring, you know, there's more players than just the Holy Spirit in this whole thing, right? In Revelation chapter 12, it talks about um, Satan stands at the throne of God accusing the saints day and night. Accusing the saints day and night. Spirit convicts. Satan accuses. I would even say our own conscience sometimes accuses us as well. Spirit convicts. Satan accuses. What's the difference? They both have to do with your sin, okay? And they both probably come at the moment of sin. Okay, how do you know the difference? Here's the deal. Satan's job, what Satan wants to do in accusation is he wants to drive a wedge between you and God. When you sin and your first instinct is to say, I got to go take care of that on my own, not I need to go confess that, that is accusation. That's accusation. Anything that's driving a wedge, the spirit, the spirit will never tell you to go take care of that on your own. The spirit will always be grabbing you and dragging you to God. That is what the spirit does. The spirit never says, go do something else before you confess this to God. The spirit will always be taking you to God. But sometimes the enemy or our own consciences will accuse us and will try to drive a wedge between us and God. And I would just say the next time you experience that, you just say, well, up yours, Satan. I'm going to God. Like I, you might be accusing, but I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this and I'm going to redeem whatever this is and I am going to take it to God. I'm going to just, you, the spirit is going to, I'm going to invite the spirit into this accusation and I'm going to take it to God. Because you know what? With, with the father, I know that the spirit will come with me and I know that the son is there waiting for me. But if I go on my own, then I'm just on my own. The straggler. All right, this is good. Okay. All right, so, so that's, so when we confess Confession is about bringing and aligning our thoughts and attitudes and sensibilities with the thoughts, attitudes, and sensibilities of God. It's about sanctification. It's not about our justification. It's about moving us into godliness. Um, all right, so let's talk about practicality. That's a lot of theology. I appreciate it. Um, Jason said it was, it was dense theology. So not dense like I'm a dunce but dense, thick. Okay, so I, and I appreciate you, I appreciate you guys making it through that. So let me be practical now. So how do we do this? 
How do we go through this idea? How do we work through the notions of confession? Okay, so I would say this. There's a number of ways to go about working on confession as a discipline, okay? Maybe the most simple way and the way that I think is kind of the day-to-day is, and I think leads to spiritual maturity, is the idea that as the Spirit convicts in the moment, you go to the Father and you confess. As the Spirit convicts in the moment, you allow the Spirit to take you into the presence of God the Father with the Son, and you confess. Um, And sometimes it's, so it might look something like this. I experience conviction, and um, I say something like this. Father, I have sinned. I have not done what leads to life. I have done instead and chosen what leads to death. And I agree with what you have said, that this is sin, and I confess that it's sin, I agree with you, I turn from it, and I also confess that Jesus is Lord. It's kind of an interesting thing about the word confession in the New Testament. We confess our sins negatively, but on the positive side, um, like a passage like Philippians chapter 2 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there's two prongs of confession. We confess our sin, but we also confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus has accomplished forgiveness. Jesus has accomplished all of this. So when I come to confess, I do both of those things. I say, this is my sin, and yes, I have done it. And this is Jesus, and this is what he has done. Jesus is Lord. And so I confess both of those things, and I move on. Sometimes I think it's helpful to have a passage of Scripture that cements this process, like a 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That sin is now in the past. That sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. And now I go on on this process of sanctification. I think that's a good way when we think about moment by moment to build that kind of rhythm in, those kind of reflexes. Sometimes it takes some training over years and maybe there's been a sense in which you felt shame for the things you've done and shame, shame is an isolator. Shame will move you away from God. Shame is a great wedge and sometimes it takes habits to be formed to say, I'm not going, I feel shame but counter to everything that I feel, I'm gonna take this to God. I wanna hide I want to blame. I want to do everything that Adam did in the garden. Hide, blame. It was the woman who you gave me, right? You, it's your fault, okay? I want, to, I want to do that, and that's going to lead to contempt, but I don't want that. I want to go to the Father. So sometimes it takes a retraining of our, of our reflexes in that. It takes time, okay? But that's one thing. So to, to memorize maybe 1 John 1, 9, keep it in a note card in your pocket, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Memorize that. Get that deep in and and go about your business. Another thing that you might do, and this is something that I've appreciated um, from the Pray As You Go app as we go through the examine at night. Um, One of the parts of the examine is um, uh, it asks, has there been anything that happened during the day that has disappointed you or that you've done wrong? And then it goes on, and it uses this really interesting phrase. It says, ask God for a gentle light to illumine that. It's kind of at the end of the day, taking stock. This is is also a good discipline. At the end of the day, to ask God, God, is there anything about this day that maybe I need to bring to you that I haven't already? 
Maybe you might memorize another passage like um, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's a great prayer at the end of the day for reflection. Maybe it's an end of the day. If it's not moment by moment, maybe at the end of the day, you're laying on your bed and you just say, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Give me a gentle light, Father. Help me. So that's another good way, another practical way that you might practice confession. Sometimes for me, (laughs) um, and I know I'm totally alone in this, but there are just days where I just feel like something is not right. And it just, I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it. My, my, um, my family, this Christmas, um, my wife made these shirts that say, Dad's Mad. <laughs> I, it's awesome. It's like, you know, just decades of responsibility have like beaten me down. And now I've got these shirts that say, Dad's Mad. And I know that I'm the only person in here that ever would experience that. But it was really fun. Anyway, you can hear the story later. But the idea is there are just days where, that's true, right? And there's something in my, and I can't really put my, my finger on it. I don't really know what it is. And it's days like that that I just feel like there, there's kind of a posture of confession. Like, I'm just fallen. Like, there, I don't even know if I could even begin to count the ways, right? I'm just fallen. And in that way, the prayer that, um, that I have been given and is an ancient prayer is what's called the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And just to go through the day, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Everything you do, every place you show up, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's more of a posture of prayer. It's kind of a posture of mourning and sorrow of whatever is disordered in me, whatever is distorted in me, whatever part of the image of God that has been corrupted and that I'm now reaping, and I don't even know what it is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's this posture. It's an all-day-long kind of a prayer. It's not a specific prayer, but it's a posture of confession. One final way. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And this is, the, this is the trickiest one. And I, remember I was talking to Dave. I'm like, Dave, if I open this can of worms, like, you're going to have to close it. But this idea of um, <laughs> there are times where you just need a trusted friend where you can confess and where you can actually hear from a human voice. You're forgiven. I'm going to speak on behalf of God and say you're forgiven. I'm going, to, I'm going to speak on behalf of the truths of the New Testament, of the Bible, and on behalf of God, I'm going to say you're forgiven. Richard Foster tells a story in his book about the celebration of disciplines in his chapter on confession where he spent a few days just going through his life and whatever God brought up, he wrote down on this sheet of paper from his childhood, his adolescence, his adult years. And he called a friend and said, look, I've, I've got to get together with you and I just, I just need, to, I need to tell someone this. I just need to for lack of a better term, get this off my chest, but also to repent, whatever this is. So he got together with his friend, a very trusted friend, obviously a very trusted friend. And he read his paper. And after he was done, he started to put the paper back in his briefcase and his friend grabbed his arm, took the paper, 
went over a trash can and just ripped it into a hundred little pieces, threw it away. And sometimes we need just a physical, human interaction to say, yeah, your sins are forgiven. And it's funny because as much as, as much as I tell my Roman Catholic story and Father Conlon, um, there is such wisdom in the practice of sitting down in front of another human being, a trusted friend, and just saying, I, I'm broken and fallen, and this is how? And that someone would actually offer forgiveness. It's a great, it's a practice that is life-giving, but the doorway into it, and the doorway into that feeling of release is confession. And that's one of the ways we walk into that. We're going to have a chance. Jason's going to come up and lead us in a, um, a responsive reading um, about where we enter into a posture of confession. But let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we want to put ourselves before you. It feels like we have opened all our wounds and now we lay them before you. And um, we pray you come clean and heal them. You are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can hear you saying that no darkness is dark enough that I would abandon you. No darkness is dark enough that my light cannot penetrate it. No darkness is too dark that my spirit cannot transfer you out of it. Nothing you have done or has been done to you can disqualify you from experiencing my transformative light. Come tell me I will not reject you. And it's that posture, Father, that you have towards us that gives us the impetus to come, knowing that your spirit has brought us, that your son waits for us, and that you with open arms welcome us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Craig, thanks for your insight into that. Um, when we consider the concept of confession, we might default into um, just our, our world's system, our world's concept of it, um, in which there's um, a, a judgment or a con um, some kind of consequence that follows any admission of guilt or a confession. Um, and in a lot of cases, that's very appropriate. Um, with this system in view, um, we can sort of hesitate or kind of prevent ourselves from um, entering into any kind of practice of confession because of the fear of consequences. We have fear um, of some kind of repercussion. Um, contrasted to how our world frames this, um, confessing sin before God is not like that. It doesn't threaten us. Um, there's no cause for fear because um, we have confidence in his assurance of grace. Confession can be a sweet and sanctifying thing um, that brings us near to God, brings us near to uh, the one who gives grace and forgives. Um, the cross of Jesus removes our punishment, um, the punishment that we deserve because of our sin, and it opens the way for 
a life and um, forgiveness that we don't deserve. Um, and so as we think of that, because of Jesus, uh, we can come humbly and boldly bringing our darkness with us to the light um, and just agree with God about our sin and uh, have no fear of being destroyed because of that. So we're gonna practice this morning doing a confession. Um, maybe you're not in the habit of it, but um, we, wanna, we wanna start doing that and we wanna do that corporately. Um, so uh, how we're gonna do that is just find somebody near you who you don't know very well and just, just start to, con- no, we're not gonna do that. Um, no, um, we're not gonna do that. Um, but together, um, we're gonna, we got a small intimate group. I feel I thought we could. Um, there's um, this corporate reading that Dave introduced to us um, at Ash Wednesday, and I thought um, it really convicted me and was was kind of striking in a lot of ways because of its specificity. Uh, so I've taken some excerpts from that that we're going to go through together um, for pieces that I think are particularly relevant to our community and some of the pitfalls and temptations um, that this specific group uh, where we are and with what we do might have. Um, So we're going to read this first part together. um, And as each slide comes up, I'm going to just give some space um, because this is the first time you'll be seeing the slides. So you can read and sort of absorb before we we say them out loud. So let's start with this first one together. Heavenly Father, First, we confess the things that we have done that we should not have done. We confess our pride, lust, hypocrisy, and impatience. We confess our self-centered appetites and ways and the way we take advantage of others to get what we want. confess our jealousy toward those who have more than us. We confess the ways we try to hide, cover, or make up for our sin apart from Jesus. Lord, we also confess the things we have left undone that we should have done. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. We have been deaf to your call to serve as Christ served us. We have been afraid to share the faith that is in us with the world. Thank you for the forgiveness and grace we have daily. 